Chapter 8, Confrontation with the Diabolical The Christians had known persecution before, but in Nero, they meet the man who gives evil a whole new meaning. During the first six decades of the first century AD, Christians were no strangers to cruel treatment. They had in their collective lore and memory the story of Herod's massacre of the children at Bethlehem, the stoning to death of Stephen at Jerusalem, and the execution of the Apostle James, son of Zebedee and brother of John. Paul had been repeatedly beaten. Finally, of course, Jesus had died by crucifixion. Yet, in the year AD 64, they were to encounter cruelty on an altogether new and unimaginable evil plane. Herod the Great could at least justify his infanticidal order on the grounds of public security, a peasant movement formed around some myst mystically destined infant would almost certainly become political, he might have reasoned, and thousands of innocent people would, as usual, perish. Better to lose a few infants and put an end to it forthwith, he might have told himself. In any event, he did not reveal in the details of the slaughter or make a point of witnessing it. Similarly, the high priest Caiaphas, who condemned Jesus, contended with some logic that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Pontius Pilate, though he caved in when his career was threatened, at least tried to fight for justice and gave every evidence including washing his hands symbolically in place in public of disgust at the crucifixion that was about to take place. Now, however, the Christians met cruelty, not just as a byproduct of harsh policy or political expediency, but as cruelty for its own sake. Pain was inflicted for the sheer joy of inflicting it, as an entertainment, a crowd-pleaser, an orgy of brutality so horrific that they would identify the man who inflicted this upon them as ultimate evil incarnate. The Christians at Rome, in the little community to whom Paul, some seven years before, had addressed his famous letter, were to be the victims, and their appalling fate would strike horror in Christ's followers all over the empire. The Christians, like everyone else in Rome, had heard unsettling stories about the Emperor Nero, his ribald parties, his irrational cruelty, his grandiose public ex exhibitionism. They believed, too, that Rome had not always been like this. Perhaps out of idealistic reminiscence of a noble past, traditionalist Romans hearkened back to a time when, city, when the city, and particularly its patrician citizens, had seemed to stand for integrity, honesty, rectitude, valor, and even despite the Roman penchant for bloodshed, justice. But that was the Rome of the earlier era, the Rome that, like so many ancient cities, revered a past wrapped in mythology. In the myth describing Rome's origin, twin infants, Romulus and Remus, abandoned by their parents, were suckled by wolves. Romulus killed his brother in a petty quarrel and later went on to found the city. The scholar Varro sets that date at 753 BC. Thereafter, the standard starting line for Roman history. Some seven centuries later, the city had become the capital of a vast empire. Rome evolved out of antiquity as a republic, with at least some power vested in a senate consisting of patrician elders and a number of tribunes representing the common citizenry, the plebeians, through, through the aristocracy, though the aristocracy always maintained a firmly controlling hand. From about 90 to 31 BC, the Old Republic endured a bloody civil war and emerged after the dictatorship and assassination of the genius general Julius Caesar as an imperial autocracy, which Caesar succeeded in 31 by his adopted nephew, the Emperor Augustus. Augustus founded the empire that would ultimately recognize, but at first ferociously resist, the faith to be known as Christianity. Augustus reigned until AD 14, presiding over an era of unprecedented peace. Though he had been a ruthless general, he, seemed to, he seemingly tried to sustain the perceived purity of the old republic, issuing decrees to raise the level of morality, encouraging literature and the arts, building an artificial lake and an altar of peace, as well as three new aqueducts, to bring water to the million or more inhabitants of the great city of Rome. More pertinently for the Christians, who would emerge in the following generation, Augustus tried to renew Rome's ancient pagan religion, rebuilding temples and reviving rites of the whole plethora of gods and goddesses. Both the Greeks and Romans viewed, the de viewed their deities as inhabiting a supernatural society that occasionally intervened in the lives of mortal men. Julius Caesar had declared himself a god, 
an innovation that may have contributed to his eventual assassination. Augustus, more cautious, allowed himself to be worshipped as a god in the east, but merely to receive sacrifices in the west. Thereafter, many of the emperors associated themselves closely with the divine and demanded that sacrifices be made to their genius or greatness, a demand that in the coming years would cost the lives of hundreds of Christians because they refused to meet it. As gods, however, even if they were not so proclaimed until after their deaths, Augustus's immediate successors left much to be desired. Following Augustus, the dynasty began a 55-year descent into depravity. Tiberius, his successor, was in his mid-years an altogether incompetent administrator, but according to his later chroniclers, slid as a greybeard into lechery and pederasty, setting up a lavish bordello of erotic perversion for his own entertainment, and sexually abusing children down to the years of infancy. Next came Gaius, nicknamed from his childhood soldier-playing games as Little Boots, or Caligula, who began in his early youth an incestuous relationship with his three sisters, all of whom would later farm out as prostitutes to his body friends. Caligula came to power at age 24, and after two years of efficient administration, was felled by a severe illness that transformed the character of his reign. Now showing every sign of being mentally disturbed, he was rumored to have built a palace for his horse, equipping it with a staff of slaves, and to have announced plans to have the animal made consul of Rome. After three years, ten months, and eight days of such behavior, a group of conspirators closed the door to keep spectators out, ran swords through his breast and genitals, and quietly burned his body. This placed the stammering, eccentric, 50-year-old Claudius on the imperial throne. Through haphazard coincidence, the troops stationed at Rome, first in jest and then in earnest, carried him in horrified terror to their camp and proclaimed him empire, emperor. While far less distinguished for sexual extravaganza than his predecessors, Claudius gained a reputation for sadistic cruelty. Although some of his rulings, such as his intervention in the conflict between Jews and Alexandrians, appeared to be wise and balanced, he rarely missed an execution and took delight in watching the condemned die painfully. He also manifested unpleasant physical traits, twitching at, his, at the head, foaming at the mouth, and trickling from the nose when angry, his weak knees collapsing under him when he walked. When Claudius died in AD 54, Romans hoped for something better. What they got was something worse. In the eyes of some, the most sordid monster of them all, and none were to discover this more hideously than the tiny Roman community already called by the name Christian, Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbarus, known to history as Nero, was born in December of 37 in Antium. He appeared just as a fledgling Jewish sect called the Way was encountering the rising hostility of Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Nero's family history, true enough, did not encourage confidence. Ancient, noble, prestigious, and highly accomplished, his family nevertheless had a reputation for ostentatious cruelty, debauchery, and sexual perversion. Gladiatorial contests staged by his grandfather became so vicious that Augustus ordered them, to st ordered them stopped. His father rather specialized in avarice, adultery, and incest. His mother, the ambitious and wanton Agrippina, had such a varied roster of courtiers that when she announced her pregnancy, her husband, presumably considering his own licentious record, declared that any child of himself and Agrippina would become a monstrosity and cursed on the state. As was yet, uh, he was yet to prove correct on both counts. Yet, as a youth of sixteen, when he came to the throne, Nero inspired confidence. Fair-haired, blue-eyed, he had been tutored by the venerable Seneca, the preeminent Stoic philosopher of the day. Tutored, according to the historian Dio Cassius, not only in philosophy, but also in pederasty, sex with young men or boys. His perverse education, notwithstanding, his mother Agrippina had persuaded the reigning Claudius to betroth his daughter Octavia to her son, thereby assuring him the succession. Styling himself Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Drusus, Germanicus, he announced an impressive agenda. He would improve public order, curtail forgery, and reform the treasury. Even his enemies agreed that Nero's first five years were marked with some credit creditable accomplishments. He forbade provincial governors from exploiting locals during gladiatorial shows, and he worked hard at his judicial duties but most of his reforms went nowhere. He abolished indirect taxes, 
and promptly saw direct taxes increasing. He forbade Praetorian guardsmen from attending circuses and theaters only to see unruly spectators, now unpoliced, spread havoc. He tried to prohibit the public killing of gladiators, but had to back down when a bloodthirsty public loudly demanded its return. He was himself an irrepressible entertainer. He wrote poetry, acted in skits at the palace, and sang and danced before family and close friends. Many in the public found him fascinating, even admirable, in the way that any accomplished performer is admirable. Soon, however, his fondness for celebrity ran rampant. In his increasingly elaborate public banquets, it was said, he used the whole city as his private house. The historian Tacitus, a highly skilled author with a keen eye for the corruption of power, describes extravaganza of Nero's that, he writes, was typical. The festivities took place on a lake populated with exotic birds, fish, and other animals imported for the occasion. Guests were floated out on rafts with crews arranged according to age and experience and vice. On one side of the lake were brothels crowded with noble ladies, doing exactly what Tacitus does not specify. On the other, naked prostitutes tried to lure guests. As darkness descended, torches were lit, and the groves and buildings resounded with song and laughter. The emperor, dressed in drag, pretending to marry a man named Pythagoras, and then in front of the guests, consummated the marriage. Even Nero's Rome, long fallen from any hint of republican rectitude, became appalled, though fascinated, by the tales of imperial conduct. His allegedly erotic relationship with his mother, Agrippina, actually consummated right Tacitus, though no one knows whether mother and son initiate mother or son initiated it, and his liaison with his 14-year-old stepbrother, Britannicus. The Britannicus affair ended badly. Nero arranged to have him poisoned at a banquet. Not to worry, he told his guests as the youth lay writhing on the floor. It was just epilepsy. Britannicus was carried in convulsions from the room to die a torturous death, while the dinner party cheerily continued. His most most celebrated victim was his chief sponsor and champion, Agrippina, his mother. She was doomed, it was said, by Poppea Sabina, a friend's wife and Nero's current paramour. Poppea urged Nero to divorce Octavia and marry her, but knew that the powerful Agrippina would prevent it. So Poppea taunted him. He was the mere ward of his parent, she said, a mother's boy. This worked. Nero began avoiding his mother, encouraging her to spend a time time away at her estates, finally plotting her death. He staged a false reconciliation party at his summer home in in Bai, fondly embraced and kissed her, then sent her home across the Bay of Naples on a craft rigged to collapse at sea and drown her. The trick failed. She landed safely, and Nero panicked. Paralyzed with terror, raced Tacitus. He feared she would discover the stratagem, arm her slaves, and assassinate him. Acting quickly, he dispatched an assistant and three high-ranking military men to her home. They beat her with clubs and ran her through with a sword. However disgusting, even these things Rome's nobility could reluctantly stomach, because they went on in the relative privacy of the imperial circle. What they could not endure was the persona Nero presented publicly, his habit of dressing as a common slave as he meandered through Rome's darkened streets with a handful of equally decadent cronies, drinking, visiting brothels, stealing from shops, thrashing anyone who resisted or deplored them. Fist fights were common, Nero proudly showing off his wounds the next morning. Worse still, as his nightly revels became known, others in Rome's elite began imitating him, rendering the city on some nights virtually lawless. His advisors delicately urged restraint. Perhaps, he suggested, his excellence could, well, cut back a little. At least, say, on the poetry readings, the singing and acting, the lyre recitals, which were causing him to lose whatever dignity remained to him in his office. His excellency demurred too small a scale for so fine a voice, he said. So, in 64 AD, he began performing on the stage publicly with a debut at Neapolis, Greece, before a mostly Greek audience, and then in Rome at the Neronian Games. He also began entering poetry and lyre-playing contests. Rome's gentry, if not the masses, were horrified. It was insufferable, writes Dio Cassius, a safe century and a half later, to hear of a Roman a Caesar, and an emperor, and Augustus, put his name on the list of competitors, exercise his voice, practice various songs, appear with long hair and smooth chin, with robes thrown back, 
present himself in the list with only one or two attendants, stare savagely at his opponents, defy his rivals with, rivals with abusive words, and then bribe the overseers in the games. All this to win a prize for liar playing. Behind such fulminations lay Roman's elite historic abhorrence of decline. Still, deeply ingrained in the proud city's psyche, were the high vi- virtues and noble ways celebrated by the old republic, where family fidelity was outweighed only by duty to the civitus, the community itself. Nero's carrying-ons were not merely revolting and immoral. They were un-Roman. This thick-necked, pot-bellied emperor with skinny legs, says a historian Suetonius, was entirely shameless in style and appearance, always had his hair set in rows of curls, and when he visited Greece, he let his hair grow long and hang back, hang down his back. He often gave audiences an, an unbelted silk dressing gown and slippers with a scarf around his neck. The foppish dress, the, dress, the passion to perform, all this was unmanly, effeminate, essentially Greek. Romans did not behave in this way. Not in the days of the real Rome, anyway. Not in the days two centuries past, when the Republic had conquered its great rival Carthage, the other Mediterranean superpower. Yet, it was that very victory over Carthage that began the Republic's gradual, de- gradual decline. Very slowly, it recalls the historian Richard E. Smith in The Failure of the Roman Republic, family priorities began to weaken, loose sexual relations and divorce became common, discipline in the army slackened, women became far more influential in high places, foreign religions and mystical cults proliferated the capital city, government spending ran wild, and public debt soared. Perhaps the most severe indictment of the squalor and degradation that seemed to overwhelm the imperial Rome was written in the middle of the Neronian era. God gave them up to degrading passions, it ran. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of weakness or wickedness, evil covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips and slanders, god-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The author of that denunciation was a Roman citizen and proud of it, and his stern language in that regard would have been wholly endorsed by those who revered and loved the old republic. Yet he was not from the city, but from Tarsus in Asia Minor. He was Paul, the Christian apostle to the Gentiles, His words in the opening chapter of the letter he addressed to the Christian community in the capital city disclosed a distinct irony. For the Christians, who would be despised and persecuted by Roman officialdom for most of the next 300 years, in fact, stood for nearly all the virtues and principles that Rome had once enshrined. The Roman Christians lived a modest walk from Nero's palace in a district just across the Tiber Tiber, called Trans-Tiberius. Twenty centuries later, later, the Italians we call it Trastevere. Many of Rome's Jews lived there too, and early Christianity was in general considered a Jewish religion. When the first Jews reached Rome is not known. There is some evidence of their presence in 139 and more after 63 BC. When Pompey conquered conquered Palestine and shipped off both prisoners of war and slaves to the capital, within four years Cicero was complaining about how numerous and how clannish they were, and how they could make their influence felt. By the middle of the first century, their number had risen to 40 or 50,000, making Rome the second largest concentration of Jews outside Judea after Alexandria. By Paul's day, they were served by over a dozen synagogues, where it was likely the first converts to Christianity tried to convince their fellow Jews of Jesus' messiahship. Such endeavors may, in fact, have occurred in the mid-30s, for the Acts of the Apostles note that visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, proselytes, attended the Pentecost feast. Perhaps the first evidence of a Christian presence emerges in Roman history in the year 57 AD. Tacitus reports that Pompania Graecina, wife of Aulus Plutius, the conqueror of Britain, was charged with subscribing to a foreign superstition, family court presided over by her husband acquitted her. 
By the end of the second century, some members of her family, the gens Pompeia, had become Christian and were buried in one of Rome's oldest Christian catacombs, lending a degree of credence to the theory that the foreign superstition was indeed Christianity. There may have been other highly placed Christians early on. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, mentions a certain Narcissus, possibly Tiberius Claudius Narcissus, a senior government office holder under both Tiberius and Claudius, later executed by Nero at the insistence of Agrippina. In the same chapter of his letter, Paul greets the household of Aristobulus, a name common in the family of Herod the Great. Though Gentiles joined the movement too, Roman Christianity from the start reflected its Jewish origins. Hippolytus' apostolic tradition, a 3rd century manual of church order in Rome, describes the practices patterned on Jewish rites. An anonymous 4th century Latin commentator, whom scholars for her convenience called Ambrosiaster, said the first Roman Christians embraced the faith before they saw any of the apostles, though later both Peter and Paul played key roles in the growth of the Roman church. Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition uh, claims Peter as Rome's first bishop. Paul's arrival there is well documented by the Acts of the Apostles and can be reliably dated to about 60, about three years after he wrote his letter to the faithful at Rome. Paul's letter shows that Rome's Christians probably gathered in at least five houses, those belonging to 1. Priscilla and Aquila, 2. The family of Aristobulus, 3. The family of Narcissus, 4. A home occupied by Asyncritus, Flagian, Hermes, Patrobus, and Hermes, and five, a home belonging to Philagus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and his and Olympus, or Aristobulus, and Narcissus, among others, are Greek names, so the Roman church likely included a number of converted non-Jews, though many Jews had Greek names. In his letter to Philippi, Paul writes that some members of the Praetorian which might refer to the Praetorian Guard or to the headquarters of a governor in a province, were believers, and these would no doubt have met in another house church on the opposite side of the Tiber. Distinct house churches would, could be a source of division, of course, and New Testament scholar Paul Minier, Professor Emeritus of the Yale Divinity School, discerns five possible factions divided over ethics, rituals, and spirituality. Many of these house churches met in tenement buildings that crowded the narrow, winding streets of Trans-Tiberius. Rome, in the 1st century, had much in common with urban third-world cities of the 21st, with population density approaching 200 per acre. The tenement buildings, called insulae, were typically built around an inner courtyard, allowing light and fresh air only in the upper quarters. The apartments were one- or two-room affairs, with the interior room, the one exposed to the most light and fresh air, used for sleeping. Sometimes several unrelated families shared a common sitting room, but this would still be too small to permit entertaining. Since, enter up, since apartments had no kitchens, families cooked on charcoal braziers located near an opening. They used public latrines or chamber pots and the small spaces found under the stairs to relieve themselves. Small shops, called tabernae, were often built around the outer ring of the first floor, and the families who operated them lived in the back room, behind or slightly above the shop. Some insulae had deluxe apartments behind the shops and facing the courtyard, apartments with servants' quarters, and a room to entertain guests or to host meetings. But even these apartments generally lacked kitchens and latrines. Privacy was thus rare. Not much happened in the neighborhood that would escape the eyes of their neighbors, writes historian Wayne Meeks in The First Urban Christians. News or rumor would travel rapidly. Riots would flare up in a moment. One such riot occurred in 49 when a theological disagreement over the identity of, a, of the Jewish Messiah seems to have erupted into a brawl. The incident is alluded to by the Roman historian Suetonius, who says that the Jews who were constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus were expelled from Rome, the first apparently specific reference to Christians in secular history. To Roman authorities, of course, it would have appeared as a quarrel among Jews, merely an internecine religious squabble. The Quo Vadis Legend In his last trial, did Peter fail? An old tale says he did, then died heroically. 
The final years of Peter and Paul at Rome are shrouded in uncertainties. The last historical scriptural reference to Peter has him at the Council of Jerusalem advocating Paul's mission to the Gentiles. The last to Paul puts him at Rome awaiting trial before the emperor. That both men perished there, probably in the Neronian persecution, is accepted by most historians and church tradition, considerably strengthened by the 20th century archaeology, identifies the place where each died and where each is buried. In addition to that, however, is a wealth of legend and mythology. Most of it appears 150 years after the apostles died. The best known appears in the Acts of Peter, a 3rd century work that records that when the Neronian persecution began, Peter leaves the city rather than face crucifixion with other Christians in the Hippodrome. As he flees south along the Appian Way, he encounters Jesus walking toward the city. Covatus Domine, he asks, where are you going, Lord? Jesus, in what became known as the Covatus legend, replies, to Rome, to be crucified again. Peter, once again humiliated, thinks further, turns, and goes back to the city, where, at his own request, he is crucified upside down, feeling himself unworthy of being crucified in the same way as his master. In another legend, quoted by Clement of Alexandria, Peter's wife is executed before he is. He bids her farewell, saying that he is glad that at last she is returning home. My dear, he says, remember the Lord. Even within the realm of the historical, the documentation of facts is sparse. The first specific mention of Paul's fate comes in a letter from a Roman priest or presbyter called Gaius, written late in the 2nd century. It places the tomb of St. Paul near the Ostian gate of the city, and that of Peter on Vatican Hill. Monuments were erected by the Christians at both these sites in the time of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, about AD 160. The apocryphal Acts of Paul, written about the same time, gives the site of Paul's martyrdom as three miles down from the Tiber from Rome, at a place identified as Aquae Salvae, just off the road to the port of Ostia in the Via Laurentia. He was buried, says this report, at the home of a Christian matron named Lucina, and the body was later exhumed and moved to the site identified by Gaius. In 21st century Rome, there are therefore two sites commemorating St. Paul, one at his traditional place of execution, the site of the Church of the Trey Fontaine, Three Fountains, which memorializes the legend that when his head fell under the sword, it bounced three times. At each point, a fountain of water sprang up. The second is the place usually recognized as Paul's tomb, where Constantine erected a small memorial church early in the 4th century. This was replaced by a more substantial building late in the same century, which survived for nearly 1,500 years before it burned down in 1823. In excavations for a third church in the, on the site, a large flat stone was discovered that bore the letters Pavlo Apostolo Mart, Paul, Apostle and Martyr. Scholars said the letter dated from the time of Constantine. This lent much credibility to the tradition that Paul was indeed buried there. Peter is assumed to have been crucified in the Hippodrome, which stood on Vatican Hill beneath the towering Caligula obelisk brought by the Emperor Gaius Caligula from the Heliopolis in Egypt. The body was buried nearby. In 1586, the obelisk, by then crowned with a cross, was moved a short distance to St. Peter's Square, where it stands today. The monotheism of the Jews, their disciplined religious life, and their ethical ideals impressed some Romans even among the aristocracy, impressed them enough for them to submit to circumcision and become God-fearers, as the Jews called them. But most Romans despised the Jews as foreigners, little better than slaves, and the same stigma that at first came to attach itself to Christians. Yet Christianity soon began to represent a cross-section of society. Indeed, some of its early success was due in part to the generosity of the wealthy Christians, who from the start shared their homes, fed the general community at special gatherings, and entertained travelers. This was the role played by a couple who seemed, from the records, to be the most well-known Christians in Rome. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned five times in the New Testament. Their tent-making business enabled them to host a Christian congregation in their home and to travel to other cities like Corinth and Ephesus. It's possible 
that they had a fine apartment on the first floor of an insula, with their tent-making shop facing out onto the street. Since they had long acted as a patron of Paul, they were no doubt thrilled when, he heard, when they heard, about 60 AD, that he had arrived in Rome to appeal to Emperor Nero, the case that had been brought against him by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. In Rome, Paul was merely confined to house arrest, so he set up a residence at his own expense, possibly in an apartment in one of the Trans-Tiberus tenement houses. In the Acts of the Apostles, Luke reports that three days after his arrival, Paul invited local Jewish leaders to hear his story. He told the gathering that he had done nothing against our people or our customs, nor anything worthy of arrest, let alone of the death penalty. He was in Rome simply because he had been forced to the legal recourse of appealing to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. His guests appeared mystified. They had heard nothing from Judea about Paul, they said. But they had heard a great deal locally about the sect he represented. These Christians were despised. Everyone spoke against them. They would like to hear what Paul thought. And so, Luke continues, Paul met with a great number of Jews in his own lodging, marshalling reason, scriptural proofs, and personal testimony to convince his listeners that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. There were questions accusations, arguments, and rebuttals. In the end, some were convinced, others not. To those who objected, Paul, who had run out of patience, delivered his parting shot. The salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. For two years, Luke reports, Paul conducted such home meetings. And there, Luke drops the story, unresolved. What happened to Paul, he doesn't say. Nor does he detail the fate of any of the other Christians mentioned in his accounts. Why? No one knows, but this puzzle has given historians and theologians something to speculate for about two, the next 2,000 years. What became of Paul's hearing before Nero? Some scholars suggest that it is that his case was simply dismissed, though that rarely happened in such circumstances. Others say that Paul was acquitted, and others still that he was found guilty and exiled to Spain. Spain is a possibility because of some ancient evidence. Clement spokesman for the elders of the church at Rome, and recognized by Catholics as the third bishop of Rome, writing around 96, says of Paul that to the whole world he taught righteousness and reaching the limits of the West, he bore his witness before rulers. The limits of the Roman West would have been where Spain began. Another scenario was that Paul was, for whatever reason, set free, then went to Spain on his own to extend his missionary endeavors. This was indeed his intent in going to Rome in the first place, or so he implies in his letter to the Romans. For the much-traveled Paul, the journey to Spain would have not have represented much of a challenge. The sailing time to Spain was only about seven days. However, accomplishing anything in Spain was a different matter. Historian Jerome Murphy O'Connor, a Dominican priest, piecing together the evidence, concludes that Paul indeed went to Spain, stayed a season, and returned his mission a failure because he couldn't speak the language. He knew Greek, not Latin. Others question that assumption. Whether Paul did or did not know Latin, they say, is itself unknown. In any event, far more alarming news would have reached Paul, wherever he was. Word would come that Rome had suffered a truly terrible fire. Much of the city had been wiped out. Countless numbers were dead. 200,000 were homeless. Worse still, the Roman church was in dire trouble. Nero was blaming the Christians for the fire. He was arresting them by the dozen. Some were being put to death. By crucifixion, gruesomely, as a, as a spectacle, as an example to the world, the first major disaster for the early Christian church was now unfolding. Rome had had fires before, of course. In fact, the fire was, in fact, fire was recognized as an ever-present menace to the entire city. Between 31 BC and AD 410, Contemporary authorities record no fewer than 40 large fires in Rome, conflagrations in which numerous buildings and large residential districts were destroyed, on average of one destructive blaze every 11 years. Most Romans were wholly aware that the problem was the residential architecture, if it could even be called that. The tenement buildings that housed most residents soared seven stories high, stood little more than an arm's length apart, and were made of wattle and daub, wooden stakes, branches, and mud or clay over a wood frame. Wattle and daub, according to the first century Roman architect Vitruvius, 
should never have been invented. For it is made to catch fire like torches, he writes. The, sat the satirical poet, Juvenal, who was a child at the time of the blazing disaster, complained that life in urban Rome was an endless nightmare of fire and collapsing houses. He would, he continued, prefer to live where fires and midnight panics are not quite such common events. By the time the smoke is up to the third floor apartment and you are still asleep, your heroic downstairs neighbor is roaring for water and shifting his bits and pieces to safety. If the alarm goes at ground level, the last to fry would be the attic tenant, way up among the nesting pigeons with nothing but tiles to, between himself and the weather. Officialdom, whether emperors or city engineers, thought the solution lay in construction codes. Laws were passed that buildings would be no taller than 70 feet and had to be separated by at least two and one-half feet. Tenants were required to have buckets of water on hand at all times. Some rental contracts forbade renters from making an open fire, and so on. The codes were routinely ignored. However, by the first century, fire brigades had been organized. Called vigils, they consisted of seven cohorts of 560 men each. They patrolled the streets at night to discover fires that were still small. They carried buckets and axes, and their first action when encountering a fire was to form a chain of men to pass water buckets filled from the nearest reservoir. The vigils were effective with small fires, but they were helpless when one got out of hand. This now happened, and the fire of 64 became the worst in Roman history. Tacitus, who leaves the best account of the fire, says it began at the east end of the Circus Maximus, at the foot of the Palatine and Caelan Hills. Amid the shops containing inflammable wares, the conflagration both broke out and instantly became so fierce and it spread so rapidly before the wind that it seized in the, its grasp the entire length of the circus. Fed by the tinder of the circus's wooden bleachers and fanned by a brisk southeast wind, the flames roared through the circus, gathering force as they moved. Soon, the whole valley between the Palatine and Aventine was one great ocean of fire, the flames climbing up hillsides and devouring the buildings and temples on their grounds. They raged through the narrow, twisting streets, engulfing the tenements and the barracks-like blocks, barracks -like blocks that lined them. Tacitus continually gra continues graphically, noting the wailings of terror-stricken women, the feebleness of age, the helpless inexperience of childhood, the crowds who sought to save themselves or others, dragging out the infirm or waiting for them, and by the hurry in one case, by the delay in the other, aggravating the confusion. Many people were simply overrun by the flames. Some became so distraught at the loss of a home and loved one that they gave up, and even though they had a way of escape, simply let the fire sweep over them. Then there were the ugly rumors. It was said that many who tried to stop the flames were prevented from doing so, some by men who were seeking plunder, and others by men saying they were under orders to keep the fire going. Who could these be? After five or six days, the fire, having consumed everything it could, simply sputtered out. By then, it had come to the root of the Escaline Hill, where the buildings had been raised already so that the fire meant nothing but the open land and sky. But before the city could even count the toll, the fire burst forth again for another three days, consuming the more spacious regions or districts of the city. Though this time, with less loss of life, Tacitus assesses the damage. Ten of Romans' fourteen districts were destroyed, three leveled to the ground, seven left with only a few shattered half-burnt relics of houses. It would not be easy to enter a computation of the private mansions, the blocks of tenements, and the temples which were lost, he writes. This, he specifically mentions the altar and shrines to Hercules, the temple of Jupiter, the various beauties of Greek art, and the ancient and genuine historical monument of men of, men of genius. He concludes poignantly, old men will remember many things which could not be replaced. Whatever happened to the rest of the Twelve Apostles? Did Andrew make it to Russia? Did Jude convert a king? The fate of these and most of the others is known only in legend and tradition. The deaths of four of Jesus' original Twelve Apostles can be reasonably well established by church historians. How the others died is a subject of largely unauthenticated ancient stories, some of them quite dramatic. The first apostle to perish was, of course, Judas Iscariot, who, according to gospel accounts, betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide. The next was James, the son of Zebedee, 
whose execution is reported in Luke's Acts of the Apostles. He was decapitated at Jerusalem on the orders of Agrippa, client king of the emperor, just before the feast of Passover in AD 44. That Peter was crucified at Rome in the mid-60s is generally accepted as probable, as is the death at Ephesus of the aged John Zebedee, brother of James. The second century North African theologian Tertullian relates that John was at one point boiled in oil, but escaped, presumably to die of old age. Much later legend has John die, not never dying at all, as foreseen by Peter in John's Gospel, but somehow living on. One picturesque story has him buried, with the ground heaving above his grave as he continued to breathe. The fate of the others appear almost solely in legend and pious tradition. However, some of these stories have gradually gained historical credibility, such as the reports that Thomas founded missions in India and was martyred there in AD 72. A considerable tradition surrounds the ministry of Peter's brother Andrew. The 4th century historian Eusebius records that Andrew led a mission to Scythia on the northwest coast of the Black Sea, an endeavor, whether factual or legendary, that eventually made him patron saint of Russia. But the Greeks, too, preserve a devotion to St. Andrew, whom they call Protocletus, first called since he was the first of the twelve recruited. A brief biography published by the Greek Orthodox Order of St. Andrew the Apostle tells of his founding missions in Bithynia and Pontus on the Black Sea's south coast, then another at the city of Byzantium on the Bosphorus, which links the Black Sea of Black to the Sea of Marmora, where the great Christian city of Constantinople would one day rise. Andrew next led a mission to the city of Patras in southern Greece, where his preaching and healing ministry led to the conversion of the brother and wife of the Roman proconsul. The proconsul, furious at the perceived treason of his own family, ordered Andrew crucified. crucified. Andrew perished upside down on an X-shaped cross. Patras soon became a place of Christian pilgrimage. Persuaded he had executed a very holy man, the proconsul committed suicide. In March 357, the Roman emperor, by now Christian and living in the imperial capital, Count Constantinople, the former Byzantium, uh, ordered Andrew's bones translated, moved, uh, to that location. This gave rise to a further story. Saint Rule, or Saint Regulus, an Irish monk, is warned by an angel to take the remains of Saint Andrew to the ends of the earth, meaning Scotland. There he moved them to a shrine that would one day become known as Saint Andrew's, and by the 21st century would be renowned for one of the most celebrated golf courses in the world. The tradition was strong enough to have St. Andrew made patron saint of Scotland. His cross, a white X, lying on its side and a blue background, forms part of the British flag, the Union Jack. The tradition of the Apostle Bartholomew, known in St. John's Gospel as Nathaniel, also reached India and was martyred there, is regarded by many historians as spurious. Eusebius records another story, concerning the man Matthew's gospel called Thaddeus, and Luke's called Jude. In this tradition, Abgar, king of Edessa on the Persian frontier, who was stricken with an illness, hears of the fame of Jesus and writes him asking for help. Jesus sends a written reply, which Eusebius records, promising to, one to send one of his disciples to Abgar. Following Jesus' ascension, the apostle Thomas sends Thaddeus to Edessa, where he heals many sick people, one of them, King Abgar himself, who becomes Christian. This is said to happen in the year 340 of the old Seleucid calendar, which would be AD 30, the approximate date of the crucifixion, resurrection, and tradition, and ascension. Thaddeus, in this tradition, eventually suffers martyrdom in Persia, as do James Alpheus, often called, called James the Less, and Simon the Patriot, or Zealot, which leaves two of the twelve unaccounted for. Irenaeus, writing in the second century, provides an account of the post-resurrection career of Matthew, for whom the first gospel of the New Testament is named. He says that Matthew became a missionary to the Hebrews. Other ancient writers described him as a missionary to Syria, Persia, and the land south of the Caspian. Clement of Alexandria, writing in the late second century, reports that Matthew did not die as a martyr. Other ancient accounts are equally definite that he did, though none provides details. Even less is known about the Apostle Philip, 
not to be confused with the deacon Philip, whose missionary work is described in the Acts of the Apostles. According to one ancient tradition, the Apostle Philip journeyed to Scythia on the Black Sea's north coast and preached the gospel. At Hierapolis in Asia Minor, according to another amount, he banished a serpent or dragon that was being worshipped in the Temple of Mars. The creature gave off such a stench that priests of the temple captured Philip and had him crucified. Matthias, the apostle named to replace Judas, thereafter appears from the records without a trace. Historian R.F. Newbold estimates that at least 10 to 12,000 tenement buildings were destroyed, plus several hundred private homes. Large sections of the city had to be rebuilt at a pace that could only sacrifice quality. Meanwhile, in the untouched areas, house and room rents skyrocketed. One of the quarters to escape unscathed was Trans-Tiberis. The river had saved the whole district. Since fire insurance did not exist, a wealthy family could be impoverished if its house burned down. If it had no country estate, as many did, its fate was left to the charity of friends and relatives. Wealthy families, of course, had wealthy friends and kinsmen, so they fared better than the poor. If some millionaire's mansion is gutted, observed Juvenal sardonically, contributions pour in while the shell is still hot. It wasn't so for the poor man's home. The imperial treasury was tapped to render assistance, but those costs eventually had to be passed on to the countryside. Meanwhile, to help the homeless, Nero erected temporary buildings on the campus Martius and in his, in his own gardens. He opened the public buildings. He brought in food from neighboring towns and ordered that the price of grain be lowered. Though these acts were popular, they did not stop a rumor that had begun spreading while the city was still smoldering, that Nero himself had started the fire. While the flames engulfed the city, he watched the fire from the Tower of Messinus, writes Suetonius, and was so stirred by the grandeur of the flames that he adorned himself in a, tra a tragedian costume and sang of the sack of Troy. The charge is difficult to prove. Nero was at Antium when the fire began, and he did not rush back to Rome until he heard that his house, palace, and gardens were threatened, but his return accomplished nothing. Everything he treasured went up in flames like most of the city. His palace, the Domus Transitoria, was leveled. However, the rumors persisted. To squelch them, he encouraged everyone to appease the gods. The Sibylline books of oracles were consulted. Prayers were offered to Vulcanus, Cirrus, and Prosperpina. Matrons entreated Juno. Some married women held sacri sacred banquets and nightly vigils. Yet, as Tacitus notes, all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Finally, Nero conceived a plan which he, he calculated would divert the attention of the people away from himself. As Tacitus puts it, he fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. This was the news that reached Paul. The persecution of Roman Christians by Nero is remarkable for many reasons. For one, it was the first time the authorities did not identify the Christians as a Jewish religion. That may have been due to highly placed Romans like Popeia Sabina, Nero's wife, and the actor Tigellinus, close advisor, both of whom have, may have had strong Jewish sympathies and the ear of Nero. Then, too, the persecution demonstrated that, in the official view, Christianity had already become, as Tacitus puts it, the most mischievous superstition. It had broken out in Judea, but was now found even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Christians, like Jews, tended to keep to themselves and their community. There were strange stories told about them, their agape or love feast, which suggested sexual profligacy, and their main service, where they ate the body and blood of their masters, suggested cannibalism. Many Romans believed Christians held immoral nocturnal rites and practiced black magic. Indeed, when arrests were made, some Christians pleaded guilty, says Tacitus, although it is unclear whether he means they pled guilty to starting the fire perhaps to play their part in bringing God's judgment on Rome, or simply admitted to being Christians. In any event, from those arrested early, the authorities extracted the names of other Christians. These were also arrested, said Tacitus, not so much for starting the fire 
as for the charge of hatred of mankind. For this, nothing less than the then death seems a satisfactory punishment. Tacitus provides a brief but devastating account of what followed. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as nightly illumination. Nero held some of the executions in his own gardens, others in the Circus Maximus, and he invited the populace to come watch. Nero made a party of this. He dressed up as a charioteer and moved about in his chariot, mingling with the spectators. The horror of Nero's action spread terror and consternation among Christians throughout the empire. Being hypothetically ready to die for Christ was one thing. To have it actually occurring to people was something else. But Tacitus notes that Nero's response was so excessive that even for criminals, that is, Christians, who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there rose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. Among the Christians destroyed were Paul and Peter. We know little about why they were in Rome at the time, nor about their deaths. Tradition has it that sometime between October 66 and October 68, Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be executed in the same manner as was his Lord. Of course, during times of trial, there are always individual failures and courage. Such was the case where some Roman Christians gave the names of their fellow worshippers to the persecuting authorities. However, these were exemptions, or exceptions. Adversity usually brings the church together. Murphy O'Connor notes another outcome. The unfortunate long-term consequence of the episode was the creation of a sinister precedent that the guilt of Christians could be presumed. Nero's viciousness was fortunately limited in geography and time to one city alone for about four years, but the episode suggested to later Roman authorities that Christians were a group that needed to be watched and punished if necessary. It was another two and one half centuries before Christians would be free from such suspicions. In one other perverse way, Nero influenced the Christians. He helped to crystallize Christian thought regarding the great enemy who would arise in the last days to attack the faithful. Thus, about two and one half decades later, the author of the book called Revelation, or the Apocalypse, describing the brutality of the end times, fastens on Nero, some say, and the model of ultimate evil incarnate, the apocalyptic beast from the abyss. As for Nero, in the years following the fire, he became increasingly unbalanced, he did not hesitate to kill close advisors and friends if he merely suspected they were plotting against him. Finally, in early 68, governors in both Gaul and Spain rose up in rebellion, followed by generals in North Africa and Germany. Nero, paralyzed with fear, prattled on that he might win back his troops with displays of weeping. When the Senate condemned him to be flogged to death, Nero ordered his secretary to help him stab him in the throat. The secretary obliged. Nero's last words were, what a showman the world is losing in me. Two years before Nero died, news had come to the Jews that the Jews had broken into open rebellion in Judea. The Roman garrison at Jerusalem had been duped into surrendering and then slaughtered. To suppress the revolt, Nero turned to an old soldier from the German and British wars. His name was Vespasian. Many said the appointment was Nero's last sane act. The dramatic and final defiance of James the Just. Stand above the people and disown Christ, he's told. He stands all right, and his witness for Jesus resounds through the ages. Two years before the great fire at Rome and Nero's act of terror against Rome's still tiny Christian community, there occurred at Jerusalem, nominal capital of Christianity, a dramatic public death that would foreshadow the ancient city's future catastrophe. James, the brother or stepbrother of Jesus, a man revered as a model of Jewish piety and commitment to God by most Jews, whether followers of Jesus or not, was sentenced to death by an illegally constituted trial. Now an old man, he died, as had Jesus, forgiving the people who had once condemned him. He is known as the Just One. When the failed attempt to imprison Peter drove the apostles from Jerusalem, they had named James the Just, an overseer or bishop of the Jerusalem church which was then the founding and central authority of the new faith. James stayed behind, a center of fierce controversy, 
because he believed and preached Jesus as Messiah. At least one attempt may have been made on his life. But few doubted his devotion to God. Some called him the man with the calloused knees, because as a priest, he spent whole days in the temple, praying for the city and for its people. He was holy from his mother's womb, reports the Christian historian Hegesippus, who wrote late in the first century, and whose work has survived in the writings of Eusebius. He drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil, or, and he did not use the bath. While some Jews accepted Jesus as a prophet, some merely gifted the teacher, and the temple rulers denounced him as the great blasphemer, James persuaded so many to become fully committed to Jesus that he alarmed the temple authorities. When many, even the rulers, believed, says Hegesippus, there was a commotion among the Jews and scribes and Pharisees, who said there was a danger of the whole people who would be looking for Jesus as the Messiah. When Hegesippus used the term the Jews, he refers to the leadership, since everyone involved in the case, James included, was Jewish. The Jewish historian Josephus implies another explanation for the move to rid the temple of the old man. James championed the cause of the poorer priests against the prosperous members of the high priestly household who ran the temple and formed the core of the Sadducean party. James' opponents, however, faced a legal difficulty. Though Judea at this time was formerly under the rule of a Jewish king, Agrippa II, great-grandson of Herod the Great, executions required the ratification of the Roman governor, whose authority superseded the king's. And the governor, as usual, was inclined to oppose anything the temple rulers favored. But in AD 62, the Roman governor Festus died in office. A successor, Albinus, was en route to Jerusalem when King Agrippa was persuaded to name a new high priest, one Ananus, whom Josephus describes as a bold man in his temper and very insolent. Josephus notes that Ananus was an active Sadducee, the party who were very rigid in judging offenders far more than other Jews. Acting in the break between the two governors' rule, Ananus called into session the Sanhedrin of the judges, the high court of Judaism, something he had no authority to do without the governor's approval. The Sanhedrin summoned James to appear before it. Hegesippus takes up the story from there. They told the old man they knew he had great influence over the people, and they themselves recognized him as a just man. However, too many were going astray as regards this Jesus, that they could not let that continue. Now Passover is coming, they said, and thousands of people would be assembled in Jerusalem. They therefore directed him to stand far above the crowd on the pinnacle of the temple to publicly repudiate Jesus and to urge the people not to be led astray by him. Though this is not in the text, historians surmise that the council had reached a further conclusion. If James refused to do this, he stood condemned under a section of the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy that provides the death sentence by stoning for anyone convicted of leading the people astray. A modification of this penalty allowed the victim to be first cast down from a great place, then be stoned if still alive. So James knew exactly what was coming. But he also knew that they had provided him in, the la- in his last years with a superb opportunity to bear witness to the whole assembled people on the occasion of their most sacred feast. Thus he agreed and was taken to the pinnacle above the crowd. Now tell them, ordered his accusers, what, uh, what is the gate of Jesus? Meaning, where was Jesus leading them? James' response rang out to the hushed crowd below. Why are you asking me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He sits in the heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. The crowd became frenzied, yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. It was the same cry Jerusalem had heard thirty years before, when Jesus had entered the city on the back of a donkey, symbolizing that he came in peace. Realizing they had bungled the job, Hegesippus recounts, Annas's servants hurled James from the parapet. The populace must be shown, they reasoned, that this kind of defiant conduct does not pay. People rushed to the spot where he had crashed to the floor below him. They found him still alive and echoing the prayer of Jesus. 
I entreat thee, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In response, one of his his condemners took a club, which was used for beating the water out of a washed clothes, and bashed him to death. One version says they placed a stone on him and bore down on it, crushing him. Thus perished James the Just, kinsman of Christ, who emulated him in life and death. The fruit of righteousness is sown in the peace of them that make peace, says the epistle that bears his name, James, the book of James, or, as J.B. Phillips would translate it, the peacemakers go on quietly sowing for a harvest of righteousness. The troublemakers, however, were about to produce a very different kind of harvest. For the moderates in the temple, what Annas had done was intolerable. They sent a protest to the new governor, Albinus, who was now in Alexandria, who watched, who dispatched a warning to Ananus that he had acted outside the law. Hearing this, King Agrippa promptly fired the new high priest after only three months in office. Ananus became one of the first to perish in the coming catastrophe, a catastrophe that the events surrounding James' bold testimony and death had made inevitable.